A note before we begin. This episode contains discussions of suicide. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, don't hesitate to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. There is help. Today's case is open and active. If you have any information that can help, resources can be found at the end of this episode. Eyewitness testimony is a crucial part of many police investigations, but it's also notoriously unreliable. Our memories aren't perfect. Usually, investigators piece together fragments of information from different sources, creating a mosaic that hopefully leads them to the truth. That's the case in today's story. We're working with a handful of eyewitness accounts, fleeting images from the day a teenager went missing, an empty car drifting across a busy highway, a tall, thin man sprinting into the woods, a granola bar wrapper that could mean nothing or everything. The details don't form a cohesive picture, not yet, but they may soon. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a 19-year-old who was at a crossroads in his life. Like many young adults, he was trying to figure out who he was and who he wanted to be. Then he went missing in May of 2016. His family has been looking for him ever since. His name is Logan Schindelman. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Tumwater, Washington is a small town just south of Olympia, the state capital. It's also the place where a teenage Logan Schindelman makes his mark. In the early 2010s, Logan's a student at Tumwater High School. He's a football star with stellar grades and a ton of friends. He's a high-achieving kid expected to go on to do great things. From the outside, he's got it made. But behind closed doors, it's complicated. Logan struggles with his identity for a number of reasons. One of them being, Tumwater isn't a very diverse place. It's majority white and middle class. Lots of nuclear families with well-manicured lawns. Logan doesn't fit that mold. He and his older sister, Chloe, are raised by their grandma, Ginny. Their mom, Hannah, is in the picture, but she can't care for them on her own. Logan grows up not knowing who his father is. 
Logan doesn't really look like his close relatives either, so he can't help but wonder which parts of himself he got from his dad, this person he's never met. Answers are hard to come by, but at some point, Logan convinces his mom to tell him more about his father. Hannah says his dad was visiting Seattle in late 1995 as a part of a study abroad program in engineering. He met Hannah, they had a short relationship, and she got pregnant. Before he knew Hannah was expecting, he returned home to Saudi Arabia, where he lives now, halfway across the globe. He and Hannah don't speak. His mom has never said as much, but Logan's pretty sure his father doesn't even know he exists. As far as I can tell, Logan doesn't talk to many people about his family history, but he must confide in a few friends because many of them know he's half Saudi. They don't make a big deal about it until one night in the spring of 2014. Logan's 17. He's at a party with his friends hanging out around a bonfire when someone starts making racist comments about him being part Saudi. I don't know how it starts or why, but nobody at the party defends him. It upsets Logan so much, he calls his grandma to come pick him up. When she asks him what happened, he reportedly tells her, quote, I thought I had friends and I don't. Afterwards, Logan changes the way he moves through the world. He isolates himself from the people he used to call friends and he changed the direction of his future. He initially planned to go to a small nearby college after graduation, but instead he enrolls in Washington State University, a college with a much bigger campus and student body that's a five-hour drive from Tumwater. Some accounts suggest he chose WSU because of its diversity. Others say he just wanted to get away from his hometown. Logan packs up and leaves for WSU in the fall of 2014. Like many 18-year-olds, he has a little too much fun in his freshman year. According to Investigation Discovery's coverage of this case for their docuseries Disappeared, Logan spends a little too much time partying and not enough time studying. As a result, his grades suffer and the school doesn't allow him to re-enroll. By the summer of 2015, he finds himself back home in Tumwater. According to family and friends, Logan becomes even more withdrawn than before. He spends most of his time alone in his room. When his old friends text him, he leaves them on red. Jenny also notices he's smoking a lot of weed. He works odd jobs here and there, picking up shifts at a local laundromat and helping out at a relative's farm. But he's not working towards anything specific. He has no clear direction, which would be fine. No one needs to have everything figured out at 19. The problem is, based on everything I know from his family and friends, Logan isn't okay with it. Feeling adrift seems to take a serious emotional toll on him. Which brings me to the morning of Wednesday, May 18th, 2016. Now, before I continue, different sources have reported slightly different timelines in this case. I've chosen to go with the most recent reporting that I personally believe to be most accurate, but I want to acknowledge that there might be slight discrepancies. Okay, so around 7 or 7.30 a.m., Logan walks into the kitchen where his grandma Jenny is getting ready for work. Logan looks like he's got something serious on his mind. He tells her he's had an epiphany about his life. When Jenny asks him what he means, Logan seems hesitant to say more. 
She's in a hurry to get to work, so she tells him they'll talk more when she gets home that evening. But when Jenny gets back around 6 p.m., Logan's not there. And she doesn't see him for the rest of the night. Logan's an adult. Legally, he's free to do as he pleases. But Jenny's more confused than worried. Logan's been spending so much time home alone recently, she doesn't even know where he might have gone. On Thursday or Friday evening, she uses a service from AT&T to ping his phone. Now, a ping is slightly different from GPS tracking. It gives her an approximate location by showing her which cell tower Logan's phone is closest to. That ping shows Logan's phone is in Olympia, near his mom's house, so Jenny assumes he's visiting. When he's still not back the next day, Jenny asks Logan's sister, Chloe, to call their mom, Hannah, and check. They're hoping they're worried about nothing, but Hannah says she hasn't seen Logan. He was never at her house. This is when the fear kicks in. Jenny calls around town looking for Logan. She drives the streets of Tumwater and Olympia. There's no sign of him or his car anywhere. On Saturday, Jenny goes to the Thurston County Sheriff's Office, intending to file a missing person report. But when she gets there, the doors are locked, the lights are off, it's closed. The department is so understaffed, they shut down over the weekend. Jenny's not sure what to do. She doesn't know if the situation is serious enough to call 911. She spends the rest of the weekend continuing to look for her grandson. On Monday, May 23rd, so five days since she's last seen Logan, Jenny goes back to the sheriff's office. This time, the lights are on. She meets with Detective Tyson Beale and gives him all of Logan's information. This includes his license plate number and a description of his car, a black Chrysler Sebring convertible. Detective Beale runs a search on Logan's plates and immediately gets a hit. The car was found abandoned on Friday, May 20th on Interstate 5, a major highway that runs through the area. It was near exit 95, less than 10 miles from Jenny's house. The Washington State Patrol had it towed, and it's been sitting in an impound lot for the past three days. Jenny's shocked. She spent the whole weekend driving around town searching for a sign of Logan. All the while, authorities knew where his car was. If the sheriff's office had been open, she could have figured this out days ago. So she rushes to the towing lot and finds Logan's car. The police have told her to touch the vehicle as little as possible, but they've released it into her hands without briefing her on proper forensic protocol or how to deal with items that could be evidence. So without investigators present, Jenny searches through Logan's car for clues. His trunk is filled with normal stuff like video games, movies, clothes, and old football cleats. Inside the car itself, there are snacks, empty water, and juice bottles, brown paper bags, and about $25 in change. But then Jenny sees something really alarming. Logan's phone is still sitting inside his car, along with his wallet, debit card, and ID. Of all the mysteries in the world, perhaps the greatest is, when will it all end? Or rather, how? Hi listeners, it's Richard and Molly from the Spotify original from Parcast, Unexplained Mysteries. 
With the end of the year approaching, Unexplained Mysteries is taking a closer look at some of the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios in a five-part Doomsday special you do not want to miss. Throughout the month of December, discover the many ways people have prophesized our demise, from a religious apocalypse and an alien invasion to threats from space and nuclear warfare. We'll even explore how advancements in technology could be our undoing. Do any of us have anything to truly be scared of? Therein lies the mystery. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part Doomsday Special, free and only on Spotify. At the towing lot, five days after Logan Schindelman's disappearance, his grandma Jenny calls Detective Tyson Beal. She tells the officer that she found Logan's most important personal items, his phone, wallet, debit card, and ID inside his car. It's troubling news for Logan's family and the police. But rather than sweep Logan's car for evidence, authorities allow Jenny to drive his vehicle home and store it in her garage. Meanwhile, Detective Beale gets to work figuring out how and why the vehicle was abandoned in the first place. Searching through 911 dispatch records, the detective finds three emergency calls that came in on the day Logan's car was found, all at the exact same time. Friday, May 20th at 3.07 p.m. Two of the people who placed the 911 calls were driving southbound on Interstate 5. They saw a black Chrysler Sebring slowly drifting diagonally across traffic from right to left. It eventually hit the median and stopped. But strangest of all, when they looked inside the vehicle, no one was in the car. It was completely empty, moving by itself at a snail's pace across a busy freeway. Now, the third 911 call came from a truck driver who was on the other side of the median, heading north on I-5. This driver saw the same scene as the other two, but he reports something else as well. Just before the Sebring started to drift left, he saw a man jump out of the passenger side door. According to him, the guy looked tall, skinny, and white with light brown or red hair. The truck driver tells officials that after abandoning the car, the man sprinted into a wooded area that runs parallel to the highway. And here's where things get complicated because all three witnesses are certain of what they saw. Two claim there was no one in the car. One says someone abandoned it and ran before it started to drift. The two people who saw no one presumably had the better view. They were on the same side of the road, closer to the scene. But the truck driver's story, the person who was furthest away, makes the most sense. With one giant caveat, the physical description he gives to police doesn't match Logan at all. Logan's mother is mixed race. His father is Saudi Arabian. According to his grandmother, Ginny, there's no way someone could have mistaken him as white, even if they only got a quick look. But at the same time, who really knows? All three callers were driving 50 to 60 miles per hour down a busy highway. They saw Logan's car for maybe a few seconds. No matter what they think they saw, there's room for a huge margin of error in all the stories. The sheriff's office launches a search of the area where Logan's car was found. They start at Interstate 5 near exit 95 and spend six hours combing over a two mile square radius. They don't find Logan or any clues. 
Next, Detective Beale gets Logan's cell phone from Ginny. No one knows the password, so they extract the data using a service called Celebrite. It doesn't allow Detective Beale to see everything on the phone, but it gets access to Logan's texts and various messages from other apps. He can also see what cell phone towers the phone pinged at certain times. Based on Logan's Wi-Fi history, he was home around 8.45 p.m. on Thursday, May 19th. For whatever reason, he and Ginny just didn't cross paths, meaning Logan must have gone missing between later Thursday night and Friday afternoon when his car was found abandoned. Using cell phone pings, Beale is able to approximate Logan's movements, or at least the movements of Logan's phone during that time. This is what he learns. At 11.40 p.m. on Thursday, Logan's phone pings off a tower in Olympia, Washington. It's about seven miles north of Ginny's home, close to his mom's place. This is probably about the time Ginny pings Logan's phone and assumes he's visiting Hannah, but he's not. We don't know what he's doing. Four hours later, between 3.43 and 3.50 a.m. on Friday, the phone leaves Olympia and starts moving south along I-5. It turns off. When the phone powers back on around 8 a.m., the phone is east of Tumwater, 22 miles from where it was before. Another hour passes, and at 8.53 a.m., Logan's phone moves north along I-5. About 15 minutes after that, it turns around and starts going south. It shuts off again and turns back on at 12.56 p.m. Suddenly, the phone is 111 miles south of Tumwater in Camas, Washington. Soon, it's on the move again, heading north back towards Olympia. Then, it turned off. And yet, Logan's car is found hours later, 80 miles away from the phone's last known location, on the southbound side of the highway. In other words, Logan's car must have turned around a fourth time. Okay, that was a lot of information. From early Friday morning to 1 p.m. in the afternoon, Logan's phone kept turning off and on periodically from inside a car driving back and forth on I-5 for miles in both directions. It's baffling for Logan's family and for the police. They can't explain what he would have been doing. The timestamps are so strange that officials begin to wonder if maybe Logan wanted to create confusion to make it harder to track his movements. But that's assuming Logan was driving. For all anyone knows, he wasn't in the car at all. Maybe the man that truck driver saw jumping from the car just had Logan's phone with him. Around this time, officers realized the Sebring could be a major piece of evidence. On Thursday, May 26, Detective Beale goes to Ginny's house to inspect Logan's car. He takes photos and dust surfaces for prints, but doesn't find anything useful. It's disappointing, but later that same day, the sheriff's office gets what seems to be a huge break. Someone just checked into the Olympia Regional Airport on Logan's Facebook page. This really gets people's wheels spinning. Given Logan's past struggles with identity and connection, some friends and family members wonder if he's flying somewhere to get away, to start a new life. Others wonder if he's heading to Saudi Arabia to meet his father. But the problem is, Logan's ID was found in his car. Plus, according to Ginny, his passport is expired. 
he shouldn't be able to hop on a flight heading anywhere, international or domestic. So what's with the Facebook post? Well, the sheriff's department says they made a mistake. It was an anniversary post. Logan must have been at the airport that time last year or something, and Facebook automatically shared the memory. Now, without giving it much thought, this sounds like a perfectly reasonable explanation. But if you use Facebook, you've probably been shown one of these memories before. They're only visible to you, the owner of the account. That is, unless you choose to share them publicly, you have to literally click a button. Who would have done that? More importantly, how could Facebook auto-post a memory that never actually happened? That's the thing. Logan never used Facebook to check into the Olympia airport at any point in time. Once again, nothing adds up. Was the post Logan's way of saying goodbye? Did he somehow manage to get on a flight? If so, what's with the car? Why go through all that trouble? For Ginny, the trail of breadcrumbs feels like it fans out in so many different directions. She thinks about how much weed Logan was smoking and worries he got in trouble with a drug dealer. She thinks about how quiet and withdrawn he'd become and wonders if he was depressed or experiencing suicidal ideation. She even considers that he might have had a psychological break. She did some research and read that the symptoms of schizophrenia can develop suddenly in men Logan's age. Most of all, she thinks back to the last conversation they had, how Logan said he had an epiphany. Of course, Jenny wishes she could have stayed with Logan that morning, pressed him to talk more about what was on his mind. Now, she fears she'll never know. Jenny's not the only family member cycling through all the possibilities of what could have happened to Logan. His great uncle and aunt, Mike and Mary Ware, do too but they're less concerned with what actions Logan took and more concerned with what others might have done to him. They tell Thurston County Sheriff's Office detectives, if Logan's disappearance involves foul play, they might know who's responsible. And it's someone very close to the family. Logan Schindelman grew up with his grandmother, Jenny, and his sister, Chloe, but when Logan disappeared, there was another person living in the home, Chloe's boyfriend, Jake. According to Logan's great uncle and aunt, Mike and Mary Ware, Logan and Jake didn't get along. Some people who knew them both claim they sometimes got into physical fights. But Jenny, the person who actually lived with both of them, says she never saw anything escalate to violence. Yes, they argued sometimes, but mostly kept it to themselves. But when Detective Beale looks into Jake's background, he's struck by two things. First, Jake has a criminal record with more than one case of domestic violence. And second, as recently as 2013, Jake pleaded guilty to a felony assault charge. Detective Beale schedules an interview with Jake, but when the time comes, Jake doesn't show up. Beale reschedules and the same thing happens. So eventually, the detective decides to visit Jake at work. He works at Pacific Wall Systems, a drywall contracting company. Jake's finally willing to talk, but he doesn't provide much insight. He tells Detective Beale he doesn't know anything about Logan's disappearance. He was working during the week Logan went missing, 
carpooling back and forth from an offsite job in Seattle every day. Two of his coworkers vouch for him. Beale wraps up the interview and asks to see a copy of Jake's timesheet from that week to see if it corroborates the account. Pacific Wall Systems uses paper time cards that are manually punched in and out of a machine at the office. This is important because looking at Jake's timesheet, it's clear he manually punched in and out of work on Monday, May 16th, clocking a total of four hours. However, every other day that week, his times are handwritten onto the card. When Beale asked Jake why, he says he called in his hours. Someone else wrote them down for him since he was off-site. Now, this strikes Detective Beale as a little suspicious. So he gets his hands on Jake's cell phone records and one text message catches his eye. On the evening of Wednesday, May 18th, Jake's boss sent him two words, no work. Beale takes this to mean that Jake didn't have work the following day, Thursday, May 19th, the day Logan went missing. Of course, that doesn't mean Jake had anything to do with the disappearance. They can't arrest him, they don't have evidence to connect him to a crime. They don't even know if a crime was committed. They just think Jake might be lying and his coworkers might be covering for him. Then in October, 2016, five months after Logan's disappearance, Jake violates his probation and ends up in jail. Investigators pay him a visit, wondering if maybe he'll be more willing to talk. Turns out he is. A different detective, Frank Frawley, sits down with Jake. Frawley accuses him of lying about his alibi and he immediately breaks. He admits that he didn't actually work that Thursday or Friday. He says he was floating down the river with his girlfriend, Logan's sister, Chloe. Now, the information he gives, as far as I can tell, is remarkably vague. What river? probably one around Lacey, a nearby town, but that's the only information we have. Was this Thursday or Friday? I can't say. And I'm not sure whether Chloe has ever substantiated his claim, but I do know Frawley decides to give Jake a polygraph exam. And according to the detective, he passes. He seems to be telling the truth about having no hand in Logan's disappearance. Now, I say this every time polygraph exams come up and I'll keep saying it because it's important. Polygraphs don't measure lies, they measure stress. They aren't usually admissible in court because they're notoriously unreliable. The results have to be taken with a grain of salt. But in this case, Jake's results are enough for investigators to remove Jake as a person of interest in Logan's case. They turn their attention elsewhere. For the next eight months, police follow up on various tips. People report seeing a man matching Logan's description near where he went missing. Other reports place him all the way in Las Vegas, Nevada. None pan out. Then, 13 months after Logan's disappearance, a local woman calls the sheriff's office with a very interesting story. Around 7.15 a.m. on Thursday, May 19th, this woman was driving to work when she saw a black Chrysler Sebring parked on the side of I-5. She didn't think much of it until 5.45 p.m., more than 13 hours later when she was driving home and saw the car still parked there. But now, three men were standing around the vehicle. According to the woman, two of them were white. One of the men had shoulder-length blonde hair and was wearing jeans and a flannel shirt. 
she didn't get a great look, but the other white man, she says, was around six feet tall, very skinny and had bowl cut blonde hair. His clothes seemed way too small for him. The third man looked like he was black. He had an athletic build and short hair. She didn't immediately recognize him, but after seeing news reports about Logan's disappearance, she thinks it was him. The sheriff's office feels like this could be promising. They work with the woman and a forensic artist to create a sketch of the white man with a bowl cut, and they release the image to media outlets. They hope someone will recognize the man and come forward with information, but nobody does. It's another moment of hope dashed. Over the next few years, the Thurston County Sheriff's Office keeps fielding tips. Logan's family does what they can to help with the case. A team of volunteers make buttons and wristbands with his name and information on them. They feature his high school football team slogan, N-G-U-N-N-G-U, which stands for Never Give Up, Never Never Give Up. By selling these and holding fundraisers, they create a $10,000 reward fund for information leading to Logan's whereabouts. With every year passing, the family gets more desperate. In 2020, Mary Ware, Logan's great aunt, reaches out to a man named James Basinger, the producer and host of the Hide and Seek podcast, which investigates unsolved disappearances. Mary asks James to look into Logan's case. James is happy to help. He gets in contact with the Thurston County Sheriff's Office and authorities lend him their full support. They give him all of Logan's case files, including interview notes and Logan's cell phone data. This is pretty uncommon, but I guess authorities are hopeful that a pair of fresh eyes can help actually solve this case. Now, I can't go into every detail of James's investigation. You should check out the full series, but I'm going to hit the most important points starting with that Facebook post from a week after Logan disappeared. The one that sent Logan's family down a rabbit hole, wondering if he boarded a flight to start a new life outside of Tumwater. James digs deeper and finds a surprisingly simple explanation. When someone tags you in a post checking into a location, it will show on your page as you checking in. On the day of the post, Jenny tagged Logan in a status asking for people to help find him. Somehow, she accidentally added the Olympia Airport as a location, possibly because it was close by. So that's it. The clue that made people think Logan fled the country is easily explained. It's still possible he ran away, but based on the evidence, it feels unlikely. So if Logan didn't leave on purpose, what happened to him? To answer that, James Basinger revisits a question we asked earlier. Was Logan the one driving his car? James looks over the phone records, cell phone pings, and the photos Detective Beale took of the Chrysler Sebring and notices a small detail that might be the most important clue anyone has found. In one of the pictures, there are brown paper bags and snacks in Logan's car. Sticking out of one of the bags, barely visible, are two Nature Valley granola bars. One is unopened, one is half eaten. The flavor of the open one is salty nut, which is important because Logan is severely allergic to peanuts. If he even smells them, he might throw up. He carries an EpiPen for safety. James wonders, would Logan, someone with an extreme peanut allergy, purchase that? Would he even be in the car with someone who was eating it? 
James thinks no, which made him wonder if maybe that truck driver was right. Maybe a white man did jump out of Logan's car, and maybe it was the same person who that woman saw standing by the car on the side of the road. But who was he? Well, at one point, police apparently show the truck driver a picture of Jake, and the driver says Jake could be the man he saw. Jake is thin and average height. He has reddish hair. He could potentially fit the description of any of the white men reportedly seen in or around Logan's car that day. But so could many other people. The physical descriptions are vague. Detective Frank Frawley is now in charge of Logan's investigation, and he has mixed feelings about Jake. On one hand, he's heard a lot of rumors about Jake and Logan's relationship. He's aware of the inconsistencies in Jake's alibis, but Frawley scored Jake's polygraph exam and believes he was telling the truth about being innocent. In Frawley's eyes, there's still no evidence that a crime occurred. There are still so many possibilities on the table, like Logan running away or experiencing a mental health crisis. But James Basinger firmly disagrees. He points out that since Logan has been missing for over five years, the sheriff's office could reclassify his disappearance as a no-body homicide. This would allow them to sweep Logan's car for DNA evidence. It would be a long shot, especially considering how much time has passed and how many people have touched the car since it was abandoned. But in James's eyes, anything that might help move the case forward is worth a try. And I have to say, I agree. As of this recording, the Thurston County Sheriff's Office has not reclassified Logan's case. However, they're still actively fielding tips and encourage anyone with information to come forward. Meanwhile, Logan's loved ones hold on to hope. For them, this case is like a collage, pieced together with clues that don't make sense yet. But just one more tip could tie the whole thing together. Until then, they remember, never give up. Never, never give up. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. This is an open case. If you have any information that could help locate Logan, please call the Thurston County Sheriff's Office at 360-786-5500. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found the Investigation Discovery documentary Disappeared Last Words and season two of James Basinger's podcast, Hide and Seek, incredibly helpful. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Brarow. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Karis Allen, edited by Amber Von Schassen, Aaron Lan, and Connor Sampson. 
fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. An alien invasion, nuclear warfare, the second coming. How will the world end? Will we be prepared? And will it matter? This December, join Unexplained Mysteries for a five-part doomsday special examining the many theories about humanity's ultimate demise. We're counting down to the end of the year with the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios of all time. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part doomsday special, free and only on Spotify.